So that's why I do these little practical exercises and things in the books, things that parents can work with their children on to slowly start getting them more in tune to their environment and giving them these these what I call what if exercises so that they can logically think their way through some of these bad situations. You know, when I was in the air marshal service, you know, we always used to say your body won't go where your mind hasn't been. You have that visualization piece and those what if games are important. Welcome to the Close Quarter Dad podcast, discussions about raising your kids with confidence, safety, and resilience. I'm your host, Adam Mitchell, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is an exciting one because uh, the gentleman that I have uh, for this session is going to really bring some knowledge that I'm hungry for, I know you are, and it's critically important that we, uh, we understand his message and his work. And he's got a number of books out on the Spotting, da- on spotting Danger. It's the actual series is called Spotting Danger. And today we're going to really have a conversation about his most recent work, and this is going to be about teenagers. But I also want to share with you that this discussion for children and for families, uh, for your uh, career and travel, he has work centered on all of those specific areas. So I want to welcome Gary Questenberry today. Uh, Just a little bit about Gary before we get started. Um, as I already mentioned, his most recent book, Spotting Danger Before It Spots Your Teens, Teaching Situational Awareness to Keep Teenagers Safe, is a must-read for all parents and all parents, of, well, specifically of teenagers, but teenagers of tweens, of kids in middle school, extremely, extremely relevant. Now, Gary uh, is a, a patriot. As a military man, he was an artilleryman during Operation Desert Storm. And after 9-11, he went to work as a federal air marshal up until 2020 uh, when he retired from federal law enforcement. He's now the CEO of Questenberry Personal Defense Training. Gary, I want to welcome you to this conversation. I want to welcome you to the Child Safety Summit. But before we get started, before all of that, I just really want to take a moment and acknowledge you. Thank you for the work that you've uh, given our country. Thank you for the work that you've uh, given federal law enforcement and everybody who traveled safe under your watch. And I also want to thank you for the work that you're doing for parents uh, and helping them with awareness and potential dangers and hazards that their children and themselves may face. So thank you, sir, for that work. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I've, you know, I've had a number of tough jobs, you know, throughout my life, but that parenting one, that was the toughest by far. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So when we started, you had mentioned you're a father of three, right? I am. Yes. I got three kids. They're all grown now out of the house, all three serving in the military. Uh, My youngest, Emily, is in the Navy. She's a linguist. And then my oldest daughter is in the Air Force. And I've got a son in the 82nd Airborne right down the road here at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So yeah, they're all doing really good. Well done. Well done, Gary. Uh, Thank you. So what, what inspired you after you retired from, uh, from federal law enforcement, uh, you begin your own personal defense training uh, agency, and you become an author of an incredible series of books. Uh, you know, most people after that type of work, you know, defending our country in the, in the military and then going to have a career in law enforcement, most of the most of the people I know, they just wanted to kind of take a step back. But you actually, you, you, you accelerated. What, where is the motivation <laughs> behind that? Let's hear about that. 
Well, you know, the whole process with the books started when I was still active as a federal air marshal. I ended my career in the Philadelphia field office flying out of there, and I lived in uh, New Jersey. Now, I started teaching civilians just uh, kind of on the side because I knew when I retired I would need some sort of a transition, something to step into so that I could keep myself occupied and not, you know, drive my wife completely insane. But uh, so, you know, as I started putting these classes together and everything, most of them related to firearms and self-defense, but I spoke a lot about situational awareness and uh, how important that is, you know, as a part of the entirety of the self-defense puzzle. And there was a group of instructors in Kentucky who wanted a class built specifically around that, just the situational awareness piece. So as I was on these flights, you know, going over to Europe and back, I had a lot of free time on my hands. So I would sit there with my notebook and I would sketch these classes out, you know, just kind of make these bullet points. The more I did that, the more I realized that it looked kind of like a table of contents and, you know, that I could fill this information in and make something that would be relevant to everybody, not just in military and law enforcement circles, but just to, you know, families and individuals in general. And, you know, over the course of a year, I developed my first manuscript, submitted that. It got picked up by uh, YMAA Publications. They, they publish primarily self-defense books. And that was something that they felt was missing in their in their catalog was that self-defense piece. And then, you know, I signed a four book contract with them. I've got the first book, Spotting Danger Before It Spots You, which was just kind of the nuts and bolts pieces of situational awareness and how it can be applied to your everyday life. Because a lot of people have this misconception that that's something that's reserved for like spies or, you know, secret agents or something like that. And that's just not the case. We all use it every day. And, you know, my goal was to figure out a way how to communicate these techniques that we used as federal air marshals to just the civilian population so that they could implement that in their lives and spot dangerous situations before they actually materialize. And then of course that morphed into the, uh, to the books for parents that have smaller children spotting danger before it spots your kids, how to work with smaller children on just interacting with their environment and, and identifying potential problems that could lead, you know, or put their safety in jeopardy. And then that led into the teen book. And after that, it's, uh, you know, a book for travelers and that's it. That's wrapping the whole series up right there. That's pretty exciting. Let's take a, a, a couple steps back here, especially for uh, some of the listeners or watchers and guests who we, they hear situational awareness. And oftentimes that can be heard as sort of like a tactical word or something that's reserved right. for the space of law enforcement or military. But really by your definition, Gary, what, what does situational awareness mean? Okay, so I define situational awareness as the ability to identify and interpret environmental cues for the purposes of spotting dangerous situations early and then being able to use that information to make a plan to avoid the situation altogether if possible. If not, then I give tips and techniques on how to escape it, de-escalation all the way up to confrontation. But, you know, that initial, the more time and space you give yourself, to, to identify threats and you understand what that looks like, you give yourself more time to work your way around it. Because at the end of the day, all of the cool guy stuff that we did as federal air marshals on the range and in the mat room, you know, it's all, it's all just window dressing without the situational awareness piece. You have to have that in place before you can have any sort of sound 
self-defense system. And it doesn't matter if you're law enforcement or if you're just a, you know, a Second Amendment supporter and you carry daily in, in the civilian world, or if you're just you know, a parent trying to get your kid to a soccer game in a bad neighborhood and you're, you want to know what to look out for. So this applies to everybody you know, in general. And I try to keep it in terms that's easy to understand and, and easy to read. I give people practical exercises and little tips and tricks that they can employ as soon as they walk out the door to make themselves more of a hard target and protect their families. Now, I might also uh, add that this type of mindset uh, and stepping into your work in really uh, doing some of these exercises that you're talking about, becoming more tuned into uh, situational awareness, it's not only going to allow you to um, be more acute to potential danger, but also hazards. You know, you're saying taking your kid to school or to, to a soccer game or whatever, but also being more aware of how people are driving or how you're parking, where you're parking, you're going to be able to know that like you're not going to park your car where the foul balls get hit because right. you're, you become more acute to awareness of your environment. Would that be accurate? Or are we specifically talking inside of uh, zones of danger where that risk escalation is much faster and, 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 and stronger? Well, sure. You know, I mean, we, we do this every day, whether we know it or not. We exercise the situational awareness piece. Yeah. You know, if you come to a, to an intersection, a four-way intersection, and there's no red light, just four stop signs, and you see somebody coming, you know, from the left, and they don't look like they're slowing down, your mind recognizes that for what it is. They probably don't realize that's a four-way stop, and they're about to blow right through it. So you sit, and you wait. And that's what keeps you safe. You know, if you're just yeah. like, hey, these are the rules. It's my turn. I'm going right now. You're putting yourself in danger. So we naturally exercise these things like you were talking about parking away from where the foul balls are hit. And that's what I'm trying to teach people how to do in these books is just understand at what point you need to raise your awareness and at what point you can let it down. Because a lot of people feel like situational awareness is just this state of hypervigilance yeah. where their head is constantly on a swivel and they're looking out for danger around every corner. And that's a good way to just stress yourself out and burn out to the point that you're completely ineffective if an actual threat were to present itself. So that's what I try to teach people in these books is how and when to apply these skills so that they can better protect themselves when things do start to turn south. So that's a your um, your analogy there of the uh, of the stop sign. That's a great pivot to a question that I personally have for you, which okay. is about the how you opened up this book with Emily's story, and you mentioned as after she had, and I'm going to ask you to maybe share a little bit about this for for everybody sure, who hasn't sure. read the book and doesn't know the story. But you said something that quickly would go by most people, and I want to pick up. I really want to kind of step into it a little bit. You said she did almost everything right. And what could she have done a little bit differently? Please explain the story. Um, but I'd like to hear, where did she, you, you, were, you said, you know, I was just happy that she made it home safe. And that's ultimately what, what the right. goal is, right? Um, Absolutely. And she did almost everything right. What could she have done different in that situation, Gary? Well, you know, in hindsight, when I look at it, like her making decisions in that moment under that amount of stress, you know, I say she did everything almost right, you know, or almost everything right. There were a couple of things where I wish she would have maybe had a friend with her 
You know what I mean? Because there's strength in numbers, go. stuff like that. Instead of driving through unknown neighborhoods, you know, alone, uh, you know, a young girl in a convertible Mustang is drawing the attention of this, you know, this guy who was kind of creeping on her. But, but just so, you know, your listeners understand the story, what, uh, the way I open up my third book is with a story about my youngest daughter, Emily, and she's on her way to the beach and she's driving through these old, you know, neighborhoods and she's just kind of got the top down listening to music and a guy in a truck pulls up beside of her old rusted pickup truck and he's making eye contact with her and she looks over and sees this guy and it gets a little awkward and she gets that feeling, you know, that intuitive feeling that something is off with this guy. So, you know, my kids grew up with me working as a federal air marshal. So they understand, you know, some of the things that I used to do, like counter surveillance routes and stuff like this, what to do if you think you've picked up a tail. These are things that we've discussed with our children since they were little and it all stems from an incident where someone tried to take them out of school when they were young. And I wow. outlined that story in my first book. But anyway, Emily, you know, she, the guy's in the turn lane beside of her. So Emily goes straight, the guy turns. So she's thinking, okay, well, that, you know, that was weird. And then a couple of lights down, she looks in her rearview mirror, and now the same truck had circled around and gotten behind her, which was unusual right so she had that intuitive feeling in the beginning and now this guy pops up again so now she understands that okay i need to do something to confirm that i'm being followed and this guy has bad intentions so she turns to the to the right and she kind of just kind of boxes herself around to come back onto the street that she's originally on and in doing so that that short counter surveillance route she knew that this guy had no business going that route unless he was specifically targeting her so she, she made her turns and she came back out where she was originally headed. And sure enough, the guy stayed behind her the entire time. Now she knows she's being followed. So she starts trying to develop this plan in her head, which my idea would be get back to the interstate, start heading back to the house as fast as you can, right? And, and get on the phone immediately with me or law enforcement or whoever, you know, but we don't want her to be, you know, just kind of hanging out there. But she came up with a different plan. And her plan was she was in this neighborhood and she was going to find someone who she felt could help her in this situation and kind of put that guy out on, you know, on front street so that she, he knew she knew that he was following her. So what she did was she's driving through this neighborhood and she's looking in the driveway at vehicles and she sees an elderly couple in their yard. They've got stickers on the back of their car, you know, and they're dog owners. And there's a picture of a German shepherd. And she's like, you know, okay, this is perfect, right? So she pulls in, she gets out, and the guy just kind of eases down the street a little pasture and parks off to the side of the road. And she points out to the couple, hey, I think this guy's following me. He's been behind me for a while. I've made some turns and he's still here. Is there any, you know, way you could kind of help me out here? And they said, absolutely, come on in the house. And they stood in the house, they got on the phone with the police, and they're looking out this big bay window. And of course, this guy sees them and understands what's going on now. So he pulls away. And then that's when Emily called me and was like, hey, Dad, this is what's happening. What do I do? And I told her, you know, you get back on the interstate, you come straight back home. You know, we'll work all this out. But her mission at that point was to just get home safely, forget the trip to the beach. You know, we'll do that later. But, uh, you know, she did, she did everything well in that circumstance and under that amount of stress because she, you know, she knew she was by herself. She knew she was in unfamiliar territory. And then when she, she, she confirmed that this guy was actually following her, that kind of sent her stress level through the roof. 
And, and given that fact, I think she handled everything as best she could. And she did. She got back home safe and sound at the end of the day. And, you know, we never found out who the guy was or, you know, what his intentions were. But that's, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there, in my opinion. You know, once my daughter gets home safely to me and I know that everything's okay, then we're good. We can work the other stuff out later. But she, you know, she's a... Uh, you know, she's a tough girl and she did everything right. She thought her way through that process, which in my books, that's what I try to get across is you got to give your kids these tools that they need to think themselves through these situations in a logical manner in light of the stress and the fear that they're going to feel. And the one thing that I've always tried to teach my children is, you know, that fear that you feel that's, that's perfectly natural. The one thing that isn't natural is the panic. And your actions in that panic state, you know, panic is a trap. And unfortunately, it's a trap you set for yourself because you're unprepared or you're unaware of what's going on around you. So she understood that once she spotted this, she understood those feelings that she was going to encounter. And she made decisions based on what she felt would keep her safe in that moment. Now, you already stated that, and, and you're really kudos to her for being that creative even in that moment sure. under that type of stress. You had uh, made mention in the book where she had kind of taken a couple breaths. She had really sort yeah. of taken a moment to recognize that her body was going, having these sort of physiological changes that fear was setting in and that certain things like, and she was like able to identify that, identify right. with that. That's something that really fascinates me because when we talk about um, teaching kids uh, personal safety, uh, loss prevention, uh, I really try to make sure that when a child is separated from the parent, regardless of uh, age, that they're still able to communicate with one another via the training and engagement that the parent had taken responsibility for putting in place. So yes. it, it, this is a perfect example of that, I would assume, because I'm almost hearing your lessons coming through her in that moment, and dad is communicating, okay, Emily, this is what we need to do. In a situation where a child is lost, maybe say in a, in a, in a state forest, because dad or mom have done the training and, and, and communicated with them, they know what search and rescue protocols are going to be. They know how to become a visible target. They know, you know, all the different things. And they know that what dad is, that within five minutes, dad is going to start, you know, contacting rangers, whatever. I need to stay put. So they're able to communicate even though they're separated. And I really found that this story exemplified that. Would you, would you agree to, with that or add anything else? Well, I, you know, it's something that, that I agree with 100%. You know, you've got to educate your children on what it is they're going to feel. It, it's easy for a lot of parents to just try to shelter their children. And, and that's our job, you know, is to keep yeah. them safe. But at some point, especially during those teenage years, you're going to have to start letting them explore their own individuality. They're going to start having to figure out who they are and find their place in the world. And they can't do that with mom and dad hovering right over their shoulders, right. watching their every move. So, you know, we started teaching our children at a very early age about things like separation and stuff like that. Like if you get, and, and it happened to me with my son during a 5K race in Northern Las Vegas, we got separated and my wife had always taught him, you know, if, if something like that happens, you know, you always look for the good guys, but the good guys aren't necessarily just the people in uniform, firemen and policemen or, you know, first responders, but mothers, you know, That's find right. another mom somebody that has children of their own and ask them for help because short of endangering their own children, 
there's not a woman out there who has kids that wouldn't break their back trying to help a child in need. So, and that's what he did. You know, he found a lady that had three children with her and they worked, we were working for the same end goal, which was reuniting safely. And that only works if you talk to them prior to these things happening about some of the situations that they could find themselves in. And I outlined, you know, some of those most common situations in the book. But a lot of parents, I think, are just afraid to, to, to talk about these subjects because they don't want to scare their child. Yeah. And it's okay for your child to be afraid. What's, what's important is that you're not using fear as a tool to control them. You're explaining fear to them, how it works, and how it can actually be beneficial, you know, when it comes to them defending themselves. So, like I said, you know, it's, it's important they understand the difference between fear and that panic that sets in. And that only sets in because of unpreparedness. You know, nobody talked to them about how this would happen. Nobody talked to them about what they would feel or how they should respond. So they're just kind of winging it. And without that education piece in place, you know, it's hard to tell how their bodies are going to react. And you don't want that to be the first time they have to make these decisions. So that's why I do these little practical exercises and things in the books, things that parents can work with their children on to slowly start getting them more in tune to their environment and giving them these, these what I call what-if exercises so that they can logically think their way through some of these bad situations. You know, the, when I was in the Air Marshal Service, you know, we always used to say your body won't go where your mind hasn't been. You have that visualization piece and those what-if games are important. And that's what I try to teach parents so that when, you know, they do speak to their children, they're speaking from a position of, you know, of, of knowledge and not just, hey, this happened to me and this is the way I did it. So this is the way you're going to do it. You got to just give them the tools and hope that you've given them enough at the in the end where if something bad happens, they know how to work themselves out of it. That's that's wonderful. I like how you, um, you know, when you're saying they're left to their own devices, if they end up in that situation, you haven't worked with them before. One of the things that I've been uh, really considering on my own is that difference between, that fundamental difference between um, being, uh, you know, approval models of teaching where do this, this is right, this is wrong, this is what I expect versus mm -hmm. supportive or, uh, or even like scenario-based where there may not be a right or wrong answer, but let's play it how it goes and, and be a support. Because I feel that when a child falls into a situation on their own uh, and they're maybe in a, in a separated situation, they go through the freeze, right? They, go, they have that freeze mm -hmm. factor where they lock up and, they, and they, they can't make a decision. They're frozen. And if we show up where it's, there's either right or wrong and you need to do what's right, then, then the approval being being exposed constantly to not not doing it right, not doing it right, not doing it right is going to feed that freeze and it's going to feed that fear in that situation where if a parent comes at the teaching through more supportive means like you're suggesting, it's going to reduce their uh, the, that that um, that freeze that they, that they may go right. through when they fall into fear. And time and distance are the most uh, critical things that we have to consider in those situations. so, this is sure. amazing. I'd like to loop back to this later on in the conversation, but I really want to get an idea because I, I, I want to understand how the, uh, you know, with some of the, some of the uh, young people that you've worked with in your own experience through the, uh, through the escalation, how, the, how judgment changes and shifts and, and things become blurry and 
Uh, I'd like to talk to you about that. But before we do, I think it's only fair that you talk about perception of personal safety in your book. Uh, and you talk about kind of what's wrong and, and how we need to sort of change our perception of personal safety. And I think it's fair that if before we go further into the conversation that you talk a little bit about that, because I found that to be really, really impactful. Okay. Well, you know, a lot of people go about personal safety, kind of putting the cart before the horse, right? So, you know, they'll go out and they'll, and usually it's spurred by something traumatic, you know, they were, they were scared by something or whatever. So they decide they're going to go take some self-defense classes yeah. or they're going to start carrying pepper spray, or they're going to go get their concealed carry permit and start carrying a gun. And of the vast majority of people who say, you know, decide that they're going to get a concealed carry permit, for instance, they get very little training past that, that initial, you know, that initial piece. So they, they get their concealed carry permit. They decide they're going to carry a gun now everywhere they go. So they don't feel afraid and they think that that's going to protect them. And that's not the case at all. So it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a black belt in jujitsu or you carry pepper spray or you've got a gun, you know, you if, if, if something can catch you unaware, then you're always fighting from a position of disadvantage. You're always being reactive. And I do this little exercise with people when I'm giving you know, public presentations and stuff about action versus reaction. And through situational awareness, your reaction can be just equal, equal to, if not faster than, you know, the actions of the people who are trying to do you harm. It's that unanticipated action, those things that you don't see coming, which slow you down, cause that freeze response because you don't know how to mentally work your way through what you're seeing happening in front of you and it and it puts you in that position of disadvantage. So the situational awareness piece is first and foremost in training. And when I first started writing this book, my first manuscript was extensive. Like I covered everything from situational awareness to to close quarters combat, hand-to-hand type stuff to to you know to all the way up to firearms use. And when I submitted this manuscript, you know, it was YMAA Publications came back was like, hey, you know, this is very broad and we cover a lot of these topics in our self-defense books. But the one piece that's missing is that situational awareness thing that you're talking about. And we see the importance in that. So I think it's important. You know, if I went on to write 50 more books on self-defense without this situational awareness piece being front and center, then I think people just have a misconception of what personal safety is, what it means, and what the best way to protect themselves is. Because it's not that gun in your waistband, and it's not that pepper spray in your purse. It's your ability to look at your environment and differentiate between normal and abnormal behaviors and use that information to plan, you know, through those what-if games, how to keep yourself safe if something were to happen that was bad. In those abnormal behaviors, you reference uh, predatory behavior. Uh, and it makes me wonder and explore some of your ideas about how we would teach our children to go about identifying inside of abnormal behavior, even that subcategory of what makes someone predatory. And I know we, you talk about the, uh, the process predator and the resource predator, but I'm, right. really, I'm really curious about the, uh, equipping our children with the ability to identify if it's anything more than just a gut feeling, because that's very true, too. Right. So the, the way I break it down for younger children is, you know, you're, 
you've, you've got these pieces of self-defense in place for yourself personally, but with your children, it's easy, you know, it's easy to skip over some of the more important factors that could apply to them and help them, you know, work towards their own safety without you hovering over top of them. So, you know, you talk about the stereo, okay, so stereotypical behaviors in parents would be like the whole stranger danger piece, yeah. you know, and that's what kids learn. He's a stranger, so he's bad. And that's not always the case. In a lot of situations, children depend on strangers to help them out of bad situations. And the trick is teaching them what to look for so they can differentiate between that good stranger and that bad stranger. You know, like we talked about, I play that game with my kids, spot the good guys. And, you know, we would just have these conversations with our children when we were in shopping malls or at the grocery store or at the park. And you ask them questions about their environment. Like on the way to the park, just for instance, on the way to the park, you know, you're talking to your younger child about, you know, so how do you think everybody's going to be feeling there? Or, you know, do you think everybody's going to be happy and playing or, you know, are they going to be sad? Like what's your experiences at this park and what do you think you're going to experience when we get there today? And, and you just get them kind of thinking about that. Like what is normal and what is abnormal? And then you teach them that, okay, if, if everything is the way you think it's going to be in your head, what would happen that would scare you? What could possibly, you know, happen that would scare you? And then how would you handle that? And it all starts with just these conversations and just getting them thinking about their environment and how they should react in certain situations. And then, you know, you always want to make this kind of thing age appropriate because you don't want to talk to your, you know, your seven-year-old going to the park about, you know, active shooters and stuff like that, just, you know, instill unnecessary fear. But you do want them to be able to identify behaviors that make them, that may, that bring that fear out in them, what those behaviors look like, and how to communicate that to another adult or to the good guy, you know, if you're not in the area. Gary, what are some of the obstacles that you've encountered when uh, when parents are trying to do this with their kids? Are they, um, some examples that I can immediately think of is, like you just said, some parents are, you know, too they, they go too hard about it and they think it's like you you, you, right. you have to look at or possibly it's their significant other their partner doesn't really think it's so important and kind of makes a joke about it or like share with us some of the obstacles that a parent who does really have a concern and, and wants to have their child have this type of awareness um, what do they, what do we need to look out for well you know one of the big obstacles to it is just uh, with, with younger children well teenagers too is just their attention span yeah you know, and, and being able to break things down into manageable chunks so that you're not, you don't feel like, or they don't feel like you're force feeding this, this information to them, then, you know, you're doing yourself a huge favor there. So you just got to break things down into, into manageable chunks and then use these age appropriate exercises. So one of the things that I recommend for younger children is to start off before you even start having these conversations about situational awareness or these just little simple games like I spy when you're driving down the road or you're walking through the park, you know, and you're describing things that are in your field of view and they're trying to pick up on it. So in my first book, I outline a study that was conducted by uh, two sociologists, Betty Grayson and Morris Stein, about how body language signals vulnerability to predators. And that's the same with our children. You know, Ted Bundy famously said that he could spot his next victim by the tilt of her head as she walked. 
So, you know, if you've got a child, it doesn't matter if you're an adult or if you're a teenager or you're, you know, 10 years old, someone who has their head up and they look like they're engaged with their environment and they're, you know, they're aware of what's happening around them, that makes it more difficult for a predator to approach that person, no matter the age, because at the end of the day, they're all very selfish. They don't want to get caught and they don't want to get hurt. And if you look like the type of person, like I said, regardless of your age, that would raise an alarm or fight back and call some sort of a scene that would draw attention to the whatever shady stuff they're trying to do, then they're going to avoid that person. So that's the first step is just getting your kid, getting their head up and getting them aware of what's happening, happening around them. And, you know, like I said, they don't have to be, you know, like Jason Bourne, head on a swivel, knowing every license plate in the parking lot and stuff like that. That's unrealistic. But they can have their head up and they can be looking around, which makes them look less vulnerable to predators. And then teaching them those little communicative pieces about descriptive language and things like that. Like, you know, have them descri- when, when you're playing I spy with them, have them be as descriptive as they possibly can so that the next time, you know, your child comes up to you and says, hey, that man said something to me. Well, wh- who was that man? What did he look like? You know, and, and have them be as descriptive as they can be. So, and a lot of the times, you know, I have parents work with children with those little adjective cards, you know, tall, short, fat, skinny, all these different things so that they learn to put these descriptive words into their sentences when they're at a younger age so that they can better communicate things to adults should they need help. Because, you know, my wife used to work as a nurse and one of her biggest frustrations was when she would ask a child, you know, like, what's your mommy's name? And the child would say, mommy, you know, there's so much that we can teach our children that that they need in an emergency situation where they have to communicate with another adult that a lot of people just overlook and it's simple little things. So we got to start at a younger age and we have to kind of build them up to this. And once they get to their teenage years and they start, you know, really breaking away from that parental oversight, at least they have these pieces in place. So like, like with my daughter, if something bad were to happen, she knows the process, she understands what she's feeling, and she knows how to communicate that to someone to find help. So that's, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It sounds to me, also, you're setting your child up for a very uh, strong sense of self-awareness in space and where they are in their moment. And this really just allows for people to to see more beauty in life. I mean, there is, it sounds to me like there's, there's another side to this coin that helps one to enjoy life uh, with greater awareness and depth, uh, right. which, yeah, which is beautiful. So we have, Gary, we, we've, we've been working with our children with these exercises. We have seen a noticeable increase in their situational awareness. What now when a child actually recognizes a potential threat or a risk or a hazard, they have to assess it. What is that, what is that next step and where do we go from there once that's recognized? Well, one thing that we have to do is once they learn what to look for and what things constitute a danger to their personal safety, they have, they have to understand what their options are and how space and time affects those options. So ideally, in any situation, you want your child to practice avoidance. Like if they see something or someone that, that causes them some concern, they need to know how to work their way around that so that they're not involved with it in the first place. 
right? Just get away from the person, get away from the thing that's making you feel scared for your safety. Avoidance is the best way to keep yourself safe 100% of the time, regardless of your age. Now, past avoidance, you've got escape. So now something's happening around you that you can't necessarily avoid, but maybe there's something, some way you can get yourself out of the situation. So you can run, you can hide from it, you know, you can, you know, you, you can try to work your way through the situation as, as best you can without complete conflict. And then past escape, there's de-escalation and confrontation. So you have to teach your children to use, you know, their communication skills. That de-escalation piece is tough, you know, for, for smaller children. It's not something that's really realistic for them, but they can communicate what's happening with them to someone else in the area. Because like I said, predators don't want to get caught. They don't want to get hurt, right? So if, you're, if your child can draw attention to the situation and, and, and make that whatever that threat is go away because they don't want to get caught or they don't want to get hurt, then that's the child's de-escalation piece, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then past that, you know, it's confrontation and confrontation is, you know, is, is, is fighting and you have to teach your kids not to be afraid to fight, you know, in certain situations that manners and all the things I teach you about being polite and stuff go out the window when you feel like your, your safety is in danger and you kick and you scratch and you scream and you do everything you possibly can to get yourself away from that situation and create just enough space to break free from it and alert someone in the area that you are in danger. So, you know, it's a complicated process and nothing, you know, nothing ever goes the way you see it going in your head. But having a plan in place at least at least gives them a foundation things they understand these feelings they understand how to identify threats they understand how to communicate so that when it does happen we don't get what you were talking about earlier and just that complete freeze response where there is no action you know there's just them and and them trying to process what they're seeing happening in front of them so the more we can educate them on that the more we're giving them that ability to respond you know, in a manner that's equal to or greater than the threat in front of them. And that's the way they keep themselves safe. Yeah. And your, your ability as a parent to be able to answer those questions that they will understand as they're happening, like, you know, like with what happened to Emily when she was in the car and she recognized there was a problem. She was able to have a conversation with you and you were able to guide her through the steps. So she'd be able to think clearly, be creative and find a solution uh, in that moment. Uh, let's come back all the ways to something that we we began to step into. And I wanted to loop back, and that is share with us, Gary, the those physiological or those biochemical changes that we that a child will go through. So if you know someone they notice a behavior of a strange man far away, it's going to seem odd. Okay, kind of Emily, he pulled up next to her, seemed odd, but but then he right. got closer, and then the behaviors changed. Talk to us a little bit about how the body and judgment, field vision closes, and all the different things that happen to the body that a parent can teach to their kid, just like you did, so that the child, if and when confronted with that, knows why their bodies and their body and their emotions are shifting and changing, and they're able to have agency over that. Okay, so the way we started this process with my children was I taught them about the conditions of awareness. And those are called Cooper's Colors. Um, you're familiar with Cooper's Colors, yeah. I'm sure. So, so when it comes to situational awareness, you know, you've got these levels of awareness. 
and the bottom level is condition white. And that's for when you're at home and you're safe and secure in your own environment and you're completely absent of any possible threats and you're about to go to sleep at night or whatever. You know what I mean? That's condition white. There is basically no awareness there. And your body is, you know, perfectly calm. There's no elevated heart rate. There's none of this, you know, you know, these sensations you get when you start to feel fear. The next condition above that is condition yellow. And in condition yellow, that's kind of that relaxed state of awareness that, you, that, that I try to tell people they need to stay in. You don't want to be hyper vigilant. You just want to be aware of what's happening around you. You got your head up. You understand normal and abnormal behaviors. And you're just looking for something that rises above that baseline. Right. And if you spot something like that strange man in the distance or something, then you move into condition orange. And condition orange is where you think you've seen something that could pose a danger to your threat. And you start to feel these physiological changes in your body. You know, you start to get that adrenaline dump. You start to, your, the blood in your body starts to pool to the internal organs and the bigger muscles to fuel them for the fight or to flee. So once these things start happening and you get that elevated heart rate, that's when your wheels start spinning. And without a point of reference, things can go south. Yeah. So that's where you have to have that recognition and that self-awareness. And you have to teach that to your children early. Because once that threat materializes and you move into what we call condition red, you know, that's an elevated heart rate. You may start to get that little bit of tunnel vision that's caused by stress. You'll start to lose a little bit of feeling in your fingers and those fine motor skills because all that blood is pulling into your larger muscles and internal organs. And then past that, there's condition black. And in condition black, you're just as ineffective as you would be in condition white because you don't know how to react. Fear is completely overtaking you. You've got an elevated heart rate that can reach over 175 beats per minute. And you're, you're just in a complete loss for what to do. So ideally, you want you know, to teach your children about these things so that they recognize those physiological changes and at what point their feelings can become detrimental to their own safety. So if they haven't played these little what if games with you and they haven't started thinking through some of the things that they should or could do in a situation where they feel like something dangerous is in their presence, then, you know, they can, they can easily shift between condition yellow to condition orange, even into condition red, and then back down, you know, depending on the situation. But you always want to keep them out of that condition white and that condition black when they're out in public because those are the things that'll get you hurt and get you killed. So one of the things I used to do with my daughters when they first got their cell phones, you know, the rule in my house was you turn 13 years old, you get your first cell phone. So... As soon as they got the cell phone, just like most kids, you know, they're keeping their face buried in it and they're on the apps and the games and all these different things. Cell phones were a little different back then when my kids yeah. were, you know, smaller. But uh, so one thing I would do is if they were ever in the house, I, I kind of became the bad guy. So if they were ever in the house and, you know, I told them, I'm like, hey, you know, you're locked into that cell phone. That means you're in condition white. And if you're in condition white, you can get hurt. You know, and I try to explain this to them. And, you know, they roll their eyes and say, geez, dad, you know, come on. So then I got to the point where if I caught them in the house in condition white and they're sucked into their cell phone and I'm in the room, I'd take the cell phone, right? And my oldest daughter, especially, I'd throw her on the ground and tickle her and, you know what I mean, just make a mess of her hair, whatever. And she learned very quickly that if I was in the room, you know, don't be in condition white. So, so that, you know, and, and, and those little games like that, yeah. you know, they still talk about it to this day. She's 25 years old and she's telling her friend about it just last week. 
But, you know, I did these things not to make their life more difficult, but to give them a point of reference. Okay, I, I need to know when I should be aware and when to slip into that condition yellow, condition orange. And I need to recognize when I'm in condition white and what kind of dangers that poses to my own personal safety. So, you know, at the end of the day, it got to the point where we're at the mall and we're walking around and my daughters or my son, they're watching all these other people around them. And they see these kids walking around just completely, you know, headphones in, completely sucked into their cell phone. And they would point it out to me like, Dad, this kid is in condition white. Like, the, who, you know, who knows what right happened to that kid? You know, so, so you play these little games and you let them feel those, the, those feelings of fear and you give them that, that, that baseline reference point that they need to understand, okay, oh, that's what condition white is and this is how it could affect me if someone caught me off guard. So I need to be here instead of down here, right? And I, I you know, and then you teach them as much as you can about the things that could pose a danger to their safety so that if they ever did find themselves in condition red, they understand it. Like my daughter, Emily, okay, this is where I'm at. I got to take a few deep breaths. I got to get that heart rate down so I can think more clearly. And then I've got to figure out how I'm going to get myself out of the situation. So all of these little exercises and all these little games that I played with my children, that I outline in these books are kind of pointing the parents in that singular direction of being able to hand the reins of safety over to your children when they become teenagers and they want to start striking out on their own. And that's a lot easier for you as a parent to do that when you know you have these situational awareness pieces in place. I think if there was one thing, I mean, there's, there's a ton of, ton of wisdom and, and experience here that you've shared. But what you just shared with us, that one template that you used with your own children is so incredibly valuable. It's wonderful. Um, I'd like to pivot into observable value, uh, or maybe even we could go a step further and possibly talk about uh, uh, hardening our children to being a uh, not being an easy target or like how predators will choose a victim and what those are. Okay. Um, so maybe if we go, maybe if we kind of flip the roles here into the the optics of the predator, what are they looking for? Okay, so you know I tell everybody predators tend to divide people into two categories, you know hard targets and soft targets, and we can do the same thing with predators. You mentioned it earlier, like predators can be divided into two categories: resource predators and process predators. So a resource predator is someone who's looking for something of value, something you have that they feel like they need and they're going to take it from you for whatever reason. Process predators, on the other hand, they aren't in it for whatever you have on your person. They're in it for the act of violence itself, right? So there's two different motivations there, but they all kind of go through the same process of target selection. And in my book, I call that the seven second prod. So in a matter of seconds, they evaluate you based on perception, right? And that PROD is an acronym. The P is for perception, right? Do they think that you're the type of person who will put up a fight or raise an alarm? Are you situationally aware or are you, you know, kind of blocked off from your environment visually and auditorily because you're wearing your headphones, you're sucked into your cell phone, right? So that's perception. Uh, the R in prod is risk. You know, what type of risk do you pose to them? Do you look like the kind of person that can defend yourself and put up a fight? Would they get hurt if they tried to, you know, take something from you? So the level of risk is a consideration. 
The next consideration is the O, observable value. So are you walking around with that expensive cell phone in your hand, right, where everybody can see it? Do you have on a backpack that's, you know, looks like it maybe has an expensive laptop in it or your jewelry or in your watch? All these different things are observable value. And to a resource predator, you know, this is what they're looking for. And then the other piece are defenses. You know, do you have any physical defenses in place that would stop someone from approaching you? Are you with a group? Are you walking a dog? Things like that, right? So, so those things, the perception, risk, observable value, and defenses are what a predator goes through in their mind when they're selecting their target. Now, for your kid, you know, what you have to teach them is to minimize as much of that as they possibly can. Right. So if they put their cell phone away and they take their headphones out and they got their head up and they're looking around as they move from point A to point B, they're moving with a purpose. They're walking with a purposeful stride and they look like they know where they're going. Right. That changes the way people perceive you. Right. You no longer look like a soft target. And then, you know, if you look like you probably pose a risk to their safety and you limit the amount of observable value on your person or maybe you're walking with a group of friends or you have a dog with you or something like that when you're in the park. You know, all these things are what when a predator's kind of scanning the crowd looking for their next target, those are the things that will deter them from approaching you. Right? So the one thing that I always tell people to do is you got to and it's hard. It's hard to do, especially with children. And I don't actually recommend you know, this for children, but flipping that switch where you put yourself in the mindset of a predator, that's hard for some people to do. Yeah. You got to understand how they think, right? So that you can better protect yourself, identify the deficiencies in your own defenses, and then correct those. So, you know, you got to kind of flip that switch and think like a predator. So I always tell people, adults, parents, you know, when you're out and about in public, go through that exercise of target selection as if you were the predator, right? And look at people. You know, what is your perception of this person? You know, do they look like they'd be easy to approach, easy to take something from? Are they displaying that observable value? Is there a visible lack of defenses? Right, all of these things. And when you can identify that in other people, right, it's easier for you to identify those things in yourself and in your children and then make the necessary corrections. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's it's a dog-eat-dog world. And if you're going to walk around with your cell phone in your hand, sucked into that digital world and you've got your headphones in and you're completely cut off from your surroundings, you know, that, that that's a bad thing for you. However, you know, if there's a predator in our midst and they're scanning the area for their next target, it's not going to be me, right? And it's not going to be my children because they have their head up and they're alert and they've limited that observable value and they understand what it takes, you know, to keep themselves safe. So they're going to look like that hard target. And in that Grayson and Stein study that I, that I mentioned earlier, that's one of the things like Grayson and Stein set these video cameras up in New York City and they just filmed people walking back and forth for days. And then they took these videos and they showed them to inmates back in 1981, right? So they took these, these videos and showed them to inmates who were incarcerated for things like rape, uh, murder, assaults, right? These violent criminals. And they asked them to evaluate people and how they would select their targets. And what I found fascinating about it was they all picked the same people. And they picked them for the reasons that we just discussed. They weren't in tune with their environment. They didn't look like they would put up a fight. You know, they didn't look sure of themselves or confident in their movements. And they had something on them that looked like I could take it and, you know, 
flip it for cash down the road. So, so all this stuff ties together. The things that I teach in the books, I teach from the perspective of, of, of a predatory mindset so that people, whether it's an adult, a parent, or a teenager, so that they know what to look for. And if you can teach them that, as well as how to identify and control those feelings of stress that they may have should they find themselves confronted with danger, then you got yourself a recipe for somebody who's actually, you know, got a solid foundation for the rest of that self-defense piece. Things get complicated, though, when we talk, and, and I'm interested to hear your opinion here, when we have the conversations with our kids about uh, if we, you know, we talk about the assessment and if we spend too much time in, you know, you use stranger danger and that I hate those two words because you're right. You know, if my kid needs help, they're going to go into a shoe store and ask the, you know, person at the cash register for the lady at the cash register for help. Um, sure. But when we live in a place where roughly 80% of those victimizations are going to be done by someone that the child's already associated with, whether it's a family friend or it's an asso- dad's associate at work, but but it's someone that they've already built a bond of trust with, versus a very small percentage actually being that nihilist, that 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 person who has targeted them. It could also be bad judgment, you know, that my teenage daughter happened to go out to that bar and she shouldn't have been there, or it could be wrong place at the wrong time. My son happens to walk sure. into an armed robbery while it's going down at a gas station. How do we prepare our kids? And do you feel, Gary, that there's that's more of an age-appropriate discussion? But right now, we need to get a baseline with what you're talking about, and then eventually, maybe like a 12 or 13 year old, we need to start to have a discussion about how the different how to assess different different groups of people and understand what the realities there are. Well, I think the first step is, like you said, getting that baseline yeah. set. So that they understand normal and abnormal behaviors in their environment. And that environment could be within the home, you know. Yeah. And past that, right, they have to understand, you know, how to communicate these feelings that they have about certain people in their life. You know, it's, it's a sad fact, like you said. With a lot of people ask, well, how does situational awareness change between a man and a woman? I get that question a lot because I teach to a lot of women's groups. And... The difference is the direction of the threat. So 70% of attacks against men come from strangers, people they had no connection with you know, prior to the attack. 77% of attacks against females come from someone that that woman knew. Is that collectively, and, right. Gary, across the age spectrum, or is that within a certain... Right. Is that collectively across okay. it, yeah. And, and the same thing goes with children, whether they're male yeah. or female. The majority of attacks against children come from people that that child knew. So it's important when you're discussing these things with your kid that you also talk to them about intuition and their feelings about certain people. Because I've always said you can always trust horses and children when it comes to telling you, you know, you know when someone has ill intentions towards them. They have good intuition. Right. So they're really in tune with that stuff, maybe more so than adults, because as adults, we've kind of taught ourselves to 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 we, we talk ourselves out of this, out of the fact that something dangerous may be in our presence. So as adults, you know, we're, we're the only animals on the planet that look at that do that. We'll look danger right in the face and we'll try to come up with these stories in our mind to justify its presence as opposed to just recognizing it for what it is, a dangerous situation and getting out of it. Children, on the other hand, really don't do that, right? They, they, they don't have the, they, they don't have the, 
like the life experiences that we've had. So when something scares them or they feel bad about it, they're really quick to communicate that to you. And if they do that, they're doing it for a reason because their intuition told them that something was off about this person. You know, the guy that, from work or the relative that comes over maybe once or twice a year. You know, you never know. But it's important to always communicate with your children. And when I talk about baseline behaviors, right, I'm not just talking about baseline behaviors in your environment or, you know, from, a, from the perspective of a predator. But you also have to understand your children and what their baseline behaviors are as individuals. And you've got to monitor those baselines because when you see something, you know, your child is very extroverted and they're talkative and they're, you know, they're open and engaging with other people. But then when they're around certain people, they kind of shut down. You know, that's a that's an anomaly from a baseline behavior. That's a baseline anomaly. And it's something that we as adults have to pay attention to. And we don't always do that. You know, and we'll try to justify that, that change in behavior. Like, why are you being so weird? You know, that you know this guy. He's been here before. Why are you acting so strange? So as parents, we need to stop ourselves and think about that. The next time we get that feeling from our children or our children try to express something to them that they're afraid of or they feel could pose a danger to their safety. You know, we don't need to instantly try to squash that and justify it, right? We need to take a look at why they're feeling the way they feel, communicate with each other, and then work that out from that point forward. So, it's, uh, you know, that, that intuition piece is an important thing, not just for children, but for adults. We all need to learn how to tap into that. Gavin DeBecker, you know, his book, The Gift of Fear, you know, primarily revolves around that entire aspect of intuition and how it plays a role in your personal safety. So by ignoring that, especially with younger children, we're ignoring a huge piece of this whole situational awareness puzzle. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, Gary, I want to be uh, respectful of your time here. I know we're coming up towards the end of our conversation. I have uh, two other questions for you. One is, uh, the first one is, I am uh, really curious, uh, what keeps Gary Questenberry awake at night and what have you confronted in the training environment with people and students and you've just said to yourself man this is coming down the pipeline or this is you know this is something that this is something that I just I don't know how we're going to be able to see how we're going to be able to address this what is that the the thing that I think keeps me most awake at night is you know, I'm okay with the level of safety I feel like my children exercise now. They're all three adults. They're all three in the military, you know, doing their own thing. But one thing that keeps me up at night, at night and something that I feel like is kind of ignored, not necessarily ignored, but it doesn't get the attention that it should, is the amount of human trafficking and child trafficking that happens right under our noses in our very own communities, you know, right here in the United States. And it's something that as federal air marshals, we learned to pick up on these little, you know, these, these little indicators that people were being trafficked. And towards the end of my career, that's something that we, you know, kept an eye out for on the plane because it was so frequent. Wow. And over the years, it just became more and more frequent. And me and one of my teams, you know, were, were you know, helped break up some human trafficking going from Philadelphia to Amsterdam at one point. These girls were being smuggled out of the country to Amsterdam. And uh, one of my partners, young female, was able to pick up on these pre-incident indicators and the way these young girls were being treated on the plane, recognize that for what it was. And then once we landed in Amsterdam, we already had the authorities waiting to come and, you know, figure out what this was. And sure enough, it was an incident of human trafficking. 
But what keeps me awake at night is, you know, how many times in my career did that happen before I received the training that I needed to recognize this for what it was, mm. you know, and, and, and how many people did that happen to on my watch that I missed? You know, it's the things that I, that I missed in my career that keep me up at night. And, you know, if people can be more situationally aware in their personal lives and they can see these things happening in front of them, whether it's to them, their family, or to a perfect stranger, and you can lend a hand and you can help and you can raise attention to this situation and possibly save someone's life, then I feel like I've done my job, you know, as a writer and as somebody who's looking at this from the perspective of my background, giving people the information that they need to kind of solve some of these problems. But, you know, human trafficking is a $34 billion a year industry here in the United States. And it's just here in the United States. Yeah. Just in the United States. And, you know, a good friend of mine, he was one of my uh, supervisors when I worked in Las Vegas. His name is Craig Sawyer. He's since left the Federal Air Marshal Service. He's a former, you know, SEAL team guy. Great dude. And uh, he runs an organization now called uh, Vets for Child Rescue. And, you know, I always try to point people in that direction because this human trafficking thing is a big problem. And he has all the knowledge, all the information on how to identify and squash this type of thing in your areas. So I highly recommend people look into that and, and just give it some thought because, you know, that girl you see being mistreated, you know, in the mall may not necessarily be, you know, uh, uh, the, the daughter of this angry guy who's trying to control her. So you got to learn what to look for, you know, how to identify what it is and then what steps to take beyond that to keep these people safe. Ah, uh, thanks for sharing that, Gary. Yeah. Last question. Uh, scenario is you are visiting a friend, maybe one of your own, in the hospital to celebrate the birth of a new child. Uh, as you're leaving the hospital, you happen to be walking through the birthing center, and you pass a young man looking through the window at his newborn baby. He's all by himself, and you just stop for a moment to kind of appreciate that because you remember some years ago when, when you were in that position with your firstborn. He catches your eye. And he shares with you that this is his, uh, his first kid. And you just kind of, you chuckle and you say, yeah, well, I've got raised three and I get it. And he looks at you and he says, you got any advice? So right now you see he's going through those same fears that we had of uh, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to raise this? How am I going to defend this? Like, how am I going to, all the questions. And he's in that moment and you only have a minute. What would you share with him, Gary? Gosh, that's a tough question, man. Like, the one thing that I wish someone would have impressed upon me when I was that guy standing in the window looking at my firstborn child is, you know, there, there's a finite amount of time here, you know, that you have to, to, to keep this child safe, to nurture that child and to make them a responsible adult that can go out in the world and carry on in a manner that you feel reflects your values and, and things of that nature. So that time... I look back now and it seems like yesterday I was the guy standing in that window, you know, so take, take advantage of that time, you know, don't let yourself, you know, get sucked into, to all the problems that life has to offer and all the things that, you know, can sidetrack you from your main goal. And when that child is in your arms and you're taking it home, you know, that's a huge responsibility. And that responsibility starts the day you walk out the hospital with that child until they walk out the door as an adult. And it happens like that. You know, you got to be ready and you got to you got to appreciate the time that you have and use it to the best of your ability. I don't you know, I don't I don't know if anybody would have said that to me, but I think I would have 
taken a little more time just in the smaller moments in life to appreciate what was happening around me as opposed to being focused on work and my career and all these different things. You know, we get so sucked in to, to the rest of the world that our children, unfortunately, be can become like that that annoyance on the side almost, you know, and that, that should never be the case. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talk to them, talk to them, love them, take them serious, protect them with everything you have. And when you turn them loose, hopefully you're giving them everything they need to keep themselves safe so that you can sleep at night knowing that you've done your job. And it sounds to me like you've done an excellent job yourself at that, Gary. So, yeah. Some, you know, I got to give my wife credit for a lot of that. <laughs> so, you know, she's, you know, and, and I even say that in the book, you know, I'm very, I'm very upfront about that, that a lot of this stuff was things that, you know, she, you know, I was, I was the reactive, you know, federal law enforcement guy. I, I'm there to tear shit up if something goes bad. Yeah. Right. She was the nurturing, caring, you know, educating person in the relationship. But as my children got older and I seen them start to encounter some of these problems, and, and they were looking for ways to work themselves through some of these situations, especially, you know, as teenagers, that's where I was like, okay, I see how some of the knowledge that I've, you know, accumulated over the years could be beneficial here. So, you know, that's, that's where it all started was through raising these children. And then of course, you know, it all ended up on the, the pages of the books. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what? It's, uh, it's so true. We have young men who are, uh, you know, just, just starting it out and they have, they feel this burden of it's all or nothing. You know, I gotta, I gotta go to, I gotta get that second job. I gotta get that third side hustle. I gotta work on the weekends. And then yeah. it just, that all or nothing becomes all for nothing. And you wake up one day and your, your, your daughter's 17 years old and you're like, where, where'd the bedtime stories go? And you know, where those right. moments that were so important that you're talking about, just, you, you just got to slow it down and, and really appreciate those moments. And, uh, yeah, it's so true, man. Where can, uh, where can our audience, uh, reach you, Gary, and, and contact you? And also what do you have coming down the pipeline? What are you working on now that oh, you'd wow. like to share wow. with us? You know, several things. So, you know, I, I just submitted the manuscript for the fourth book, fourth and final book in the series, which is going to be spotting danger for travelers. Uh, People can reach me at uh, on my website, like through my website, which is just GaryQuestenberry.com. That's kind of my hub for everything. So there's links to all the books. You can pick the books up anywhere. You know, you buy books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, any of these places. Target, Amazon, they're all over. Uh, we recently released all the books in hardcover as well, as well as you know, there's the digital version, and we just released the audio books. So for people that have a little bit of a busy schedule, they like to listen to audio books or whatever on their commutes, then that's perfect for them. So that's everything can be found at GaryQuestenberry.com. Great. I'm going to tell everybody that, you know, I know audio books are a great thing, but Gary's book, you're going to need a hard, you're going to need a hard copy of it because you're going to be circling and underlining and taking notes. It's not, it is an audio book, absolutely, and maybe get them both. But plan on taking notes because it's that kind of book. It's that good. So yeah, you yeah. know, I tried to keep them all relatively, you know, thin and and you know, easy to read. It's not too daunting whenever you look at it. Everything's in plain language. But I've had so many people reach out to me recently, and you know, with pictures of their books, and they're all highlighted and underlined, and notes in the margins, and they're on their third read, and they're yeah. you know, they're like they pick up something different every time they read it, and you know, that's. To, you know, that's very gratifying for me because I feel like if people, you know, 
can, can take this information and they feel like it's something that was so beneficial that they're going to read it again or they're going to gift that book to someone else, then, then I've done my job. So, and so far, like most of the, you know, the word on this book has been organic. And now, you know, I kind of travel around the country and speak at different events and stuff like that and talk to companies and organizations about situational awareness and how that should be implemented. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's keeping me fairly busy now in my retirement. And it's something that I still feel very closely connected to. So it's, uh, you know, it's not, you know, it's not me running around all over the globe carrying a gun trying to protect American citizens, but I feel like it's still something. I still got a lot of that fight left in me. And if I can get it out through these books, then so be it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Gary, I look forward to hopefully continuing this conversation with you with the, when, you're, uh, when your new book comes out on travel, because that really interests me. And I'd love to have you on our uh, podcast to talk about that when, when it's uh, ready for release. Uh, and, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. And, and I, again, I just want to thank you for this work, man. And I uh, look forward to talking to you again, my friend. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I want to thank you for spending time with us on this episode today. It's truly appreciated. I hope you got some value from it. If you want to go ahead and leave any comments or questions, reach out to me directly. I personally answer all of the questions that you have. If you know someone like yourself who may find value in this episode, then please go ahead and share it. We'd also like to ask you to subscribe to Close Quarter Dad. This way you get updated every time a new episode comes out wherever you're listening to this episode. Thank you so much once again, and we'll see you on the next episode of Close Quarter Dad.